we need Julian Assange. And one thing I want to say to you today is, it is not only that he is the victim of torture, it is not only that his life is at stake, it is not only the will to save him from a dreadful injustice, we also want to save him because the world needs Julian Assange as a symbol and fighter for liberty in Uh, Anton Karras and the Third Man, as you know, and the very talk, Craig Murray, back in November uh, at St. Pancras Church uh, in London, uh, back uh, 2019, November 30th. Uh, and uh, Craig Murray is our guest today. That's it, just Craig Murray. I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, uh, WBAI 99.5 FM, all of that. Uh, in uh, North Carolina, uh, my engineer and uh, chief editor, is uh, Kelly Lane, and it's just two of us here. And uh, like I said, Craig Murray's been following this trial of Julian Assange, his bogus charade that's going on. I guess that's redundant in, uh, at the Old Bailey. So he's put out a report every single day at craigmurray.org.uk. You can see him, and um, he's been with us now for four years. We've had many interviews with uh, Craig Murray. He's uh, a wonderful kind. And uh, go there, check out his website, gregmarie.org.uk, and get your own, you know, subscription. You don't have to subscribe, but you can read all 17 dispatches uh, from uh, both Belmarsh and from uh, the old Bailey in London. All right, so we're going to go right now, come right back uh, with Craig Murray uh, this week. His favorite tune is, um, we've been playing it for four years, is Logical Song. Uh, by um, by Supertramp. So we'll be right back after this little pastiche from uh, Supertramp's logical song with the great Greg Moore. When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful. A miracle, oh, it was beautiful, magical. And all the birds in the trees, they be singing so happily. Logical song, uh, which of course is a theme song for the guest that we have today. By the way, I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, episode 42, also on WBAI 99.5 FM, Free Speech Radio in New York City. And as I said, Supertramp, 
we've been playing that for I think four years now. We've been uh, we've had the great pleasure of uh, having conversations with the great uh, diplomat uh, writer uh, right now. The face, the the um, the man, the the voice, the your your man in the public gallery, Craig Murray, who has been uh, for the past three weeks on a daily basis putting out what are basically uh, Atlantic feature piece articles on a daily basis, recapping, uh, I think mostly from memory of that day's events inside the Old Bailey. Uh, well, at any rate, Craig Murray, The Logical Man, thank you for joining us again. Thank you, Vanti. Thank you for inviting me. I, I, I want to begin by um, this Old Bailey thing. This uh, You talk about it in, the, in your very first dispatch uh, on September 7th, I think, September 8th, the next day afterwards, about going into this building with only three people. The Old Bailey is uh, just, what the hell is the Old Bailey for those out there who don't know? Yeah. It's um, London's highest criminal court. Um, and it's on the, the scene of the old, it's on, it's on the site of the old Newgate jail. So there's been a criminal court on this site for at least 500 years and possibly up to 700 years. Um, and ba Bailey, of course, was the name for a fortified enclosure. So it was it was hard up against on the corner of the ancient London city wall. And it's where criminals were tried back in medieval times. And really up until the 1830s, you know, if you were convicted there of even very small things like, you know, stealing a handkerchief or whatever, you would immediately be taken out and hung straight away. Um, so uh, there are literally over five, six hundred years, there are thousands and thousands of people who were hung right outside the place um, and then buried under the street. So it, it's a very peculiar place. It was rebuilt in the 1900s and the 1930s. So, so now it's a, um, it's still on the same site, but, but it, it's like a grim uh, Soviet looking building now. And um, uh, when we go into the public gallery, we have to climb 132 steps to get into the public gallery where we're going. Every morning I have to climb up 132 steps to get into the public gallery for because they're deliberately holding this trial in the, you know, the most obscure corner of the building. There are um, several dozen, the most obscure one. Right. How many, how many uh, trials uh, can take place simultaneously in that building? Or is there just one main... Uh, no, uh, 20 or so trials take place simultaneously in the building. You know, by the way, uh, you know, I, I was reading about John Wilkes in the 1770s, 1780s, and, and um, you know, uh, people that uh, were supporters of his who were actually hanged outside of that, or inside, outside of that building uh, in the 1780s. In fact, Thomas Paine, he writes about it in Common Sense. He's to see, and you're not exaggerating when you say, kids would be hanged there for the smallest of charges yeah yeah no it, it, it's a, 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 there's a great, there's a great deal of evil uh in that place yeah so uh now can you feel it walking up those stairs 132 what i can't even imagine what is that like five six flights of stairs that's more like um yeah tw uh yeah well at least a, a minimum of eight 
um, uh, eight to ten flights of stairs, depending how high your ceilings are. Yeah. And who do you now? You went there the very first day, and you've been there ever since. And it's only—it's um, not a throng; it's—it's it's a little group of uh, like four or five people that are able to get into the public gallery, including John Shipton. Yeah, only five people are allowed in the public gallery. I mean, it has forty-two seats, but they're only. And of course, the excuse is COVID, but that's not. Yeah. Is it COVID? Is that the excuse. reason why? Yeah, but we, um, you know, you're supposed to be six feet apart, and we could we could have easily um, uh, 15, 16 people in there, and all be six feet apart. It, it, they're forty-two seats, so you don't need you don't need only five people because of COVID. I bet you they'd like to not have you in there at this point. How are you getting along with? Uh, I know we, we they were very nice to you uh, in Balmorish, but how uh, are they treating you here? And, uh, yeah, I mean, the ordinary working men, you know, the security guards and people have all been extremely nice and extremely helpful. And we, we struck up good relationships with them. They're, they're, they're absolutely fine. The, you know, the authorities aren't fond of me. Um, and, and I should say as well that, you know, other groups like um, Amnesty International, like Penn, the International Writers Freedom Group, uh, Reporters Without Borders, all these groups haven't been allowed in. And not only that, they've not been allowed to follow on the internet. You've got to be kidding me. How is that possible? Who makes that, um, that, uh, you know, that, who puts up that barricade against groups, formidable groups, internationally respected groups like that from yep. monitoring the trial? No, that was the judge. And in fact, the court, the court officials registered 40 such groups. Um, and then on the day of the hearing, they all had their access closed down by the judge. She, 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 she said she decided it was in the interests of justice that they, they shouldn't be allowed to observe. I, I mean, how you explain that, I don't know. I, 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 I genuinely cannot think of any single argument why it would be in the interests of justice for Amnesty International can't uh, we've had eight members of the European Parliament had their um, had their access cut off so they can't watch uh, it's quite it's quite extraordinary they've closed the public gallery to almost everyone they won't let human rights groups observe and the the media have all and you know it's been very spectacular trial with, with some amazing witnesses and some incredible evidence and the the media have hardly covered it at all it, it, you know in the states the, the Washington the uh, Post or the New York Times have, have hardly had anything about it at all. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, you're right. The witnesses have been spectacular. Uh, but uh, from the very outset, uh, it, it looks like it is so rigged and such a political trial, and they're not even uh, making any semblance of an attempt to make it look like it's, it's an objective uh, proceedings. Uh, who, who's really calling the shots in your estimation, what you've been able to deduce watching this on a regular basis, or every day, actually? Well, the, um, uh, I mean, the prosecutor is acting on behalf of, the, because it's an extradition case, he's acting on behalf of the United States government. He's not acting on behalf of the British government. He's acting on behalf of the US government. And essentially, the US government seems to be calling on the shots. They, uh, on all the major rulings, the judge just does what the US government tells her to do. It, it, it does feel like, you know, you're, you're in a situation where 
it, it certainly doesn't feel like, in any sense like a fair and impartial court. Uh, and it does really seem that, that the US government is able to, to call on the shots, including, I mean, just to give you one example of that, the US government uh, has said that it objects to anybody, any witness saying they were tortured. So we had evidence from um, uh, Guantanamo victims and extraordinary rendition victims, um, which goes to what WikiLeaks did in exposing those crimes and the argument that what WikiLeaks did was a necessary act to expose crime because you're allowed to, um, you know, to prevent a greater crime, you're allowed to break a law. Um, uh, but the United States government said it objected to any evidence of torture being given. So the judge ruled that none of the witnesses can say that, they were, that there was torture in Guantanamo Bay. And the, and the defense lawyers are not allowed to say there was torture in Guantanamo Bay, even though there's nobody in the whole world who doesn't know <laughs> there was torture in Guantanamo Bay. That, that's not in dispute uh, as a fact, but it's not allowed to be said in the court because of the objections of the United States government. And, and you know, there's several other such legal madnesses going on. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to go back to the, from the very beginning, I thought I, many of the witnesses have been spectacular. Uh, tell us about uh, 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 Clive uh, Stafford Smith. Yeah, he, he was a, a, a tremendous witness. He works for um, Reprieve, which he founded. He's, he's, a, he's a lawyer and he's an attorney and he's a practicing attorney in the United States as well as being an attorney uh, here in the UK. Um, and uh, he's represented a lot of the uh, Guantanamo Bay uh, detainees uh, and his evidence um, of, uh, you know, the extent of war crimes and his, uh, his evidence of extent to which WikiLeaks has helped him and he's been able to use information from WikiLeaks actually in court, in trials. He's been able to use, you know, in, in American courts, he's been able to use information released from the uh, Afghan war logs and the diplomatic cables in order to help people successfully with their defense. Um, and he also gave uh, evidence on how some of the WikiLeaks material is being used by the International Criminal Court as well on an international basis. So, so that, you know, that is very strong and powerful evidence. And of course, took people to what this is actually about. You know, this is about Julian Assange being prosecuted for exposing war crimes. That's what this is about. It, there's there's uh, uh, other witnesses that first week. Uh, Trevor, uh, Tim, and uh, Professor uh, Rogers uh, both gave testimony. Can you uh, kind of sum up what uh, they conveyed in that courtroom? Yeah, Tre Trevor, Tim um, uh, represents a, a big American NGO which supports press freedom and which represents many thousands of journalists across the United States. And he uh, um, he gave evidence which essentially said that you know, this prosecution is a breach of the First Amendment. And we, we, we had him and we had other journalists and other lecturers in journalism, professors of journalism, to cultivate and encourage sources and get those sources to give you information. And the, the charge that, um, because um, although, the, although the US government is trying to say that Julian Assange is only charged with publishing a very few of the cables which mention names. He's charged with possession of all of the cables and all of the material and charged with colluding with and conspiracy with Chelsea Manning to get the material. Um, so if he's found guilty of that, any journalist who cultivates any source, I mean, it would have been illegal 
what, what was done in Watergate with deep dote would have been illegal. That would have been conspiracy with the source to get the, the material. This is going to basically make all investigative journalism illegal if this goes to. And, and that's what Tim uh, was, um, you know, was testifying to in particular. And he was a very, very strong witness. My, my, one of my very favorite moments in the whole trial um, came um, when uh, the prosecution, the prosecution had been very aggressive and with every witness, they challenged their expertise and say they're not qualified and they're biased. And, you know, they had professors of journalism, they told them know nothing about journalism and professors of law, they've said, have known nothing about law. And professors of psychiatry, they've said, have known nothing of psychiatry. And uh, with, um, with Tim, uh, he was giving all this evidence on the First Amendment and on the law regarding journalism. And the prosecution said, and what makes you able to give an opinion on a matter of law when you're just a journalist? And Tim replied, um, I'm an attorney. Because <laughs> he is an attorney. So, um, that, was, um, that, that was one of the, the more amusing moments where the prosecutor hadn't done his homework. I, I, I got to tell you, I think a lot of these witnesses have been very uh, good uh, in uh, responding to the challenges by, uh, uh, is it Mark Lewis, the uh, James, 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 James Lewis. There's James Lewis, Lewis, Eric Lewis, but, but, did you, but, but. Um, yeah, Lewis versus Lewis was a, was a difficult uh, thing to report. Yeah. Yes, I know. And I, and I, that's the reason why I wait until the next day to read. By the way, before we continue, how do you do it, Craig? You can't take notes in there. Uh, from what I understand, you're unable to go under with a with a computer and type things out and then bring them home with you. Are you able to do that now? No, I'm not allowed. You're not allowed. I'm not even allowed to take my mobile phone in. You're not allowed to take any electronic equipment in at all. Uh, but you can take in a notepad. So I do it the very old fashioned way. In fact, I filled this notepad so far. This is 300 pages. Which sure, put that up there. There we go. So, look, look. 300 Ow. pages all filled up. Uh, with my my terrible right handing uh, handwriting, that's my those are my every day I sit there. So that's an average. And then I've started my second notepad. So now I think I've finished 360 pages. So that's um, that's over 13 days. 13 days. So you've got uh, actually I know it's day up to day 17, which includes the first three or four days. Uh, uh, back that includes us back in February, March. We had four days. Start number six. You can get them, you can get all of those, I believe, at uh, craigmurray.org.uk. You can get every single one of your um, your uh, you know post uh, that day uh, events uh, story features. They're really features. They're not like news articles. They're features. They're all like three or four thousand words. How do you do it? Yeah. Now they average just over 4,000 words. Um, and so if you're going to go back and read, including with February, by now you've got about 70,000 words, which is like right. a book. But, um, that, wait, wait, that's what I did last night. When, when I found out last yeah. night that we were doing this, I said, you know what? I'm just going to read all of those articles uh, by Craig over the last couple of weeks. And it turns out it's like, my God, it was reading War and Peace. There's so much <laughs> material that you published over the last two and a half weeks that I couldn't read all of that. So I had to like go, you know, from one to the next, look at your tweets and try to really get, get absorb everything that you wrote. And, you know, people can get it. I know you're doing this on your own and people can also subscribe uh, to uh, your uh, column, which they should do. And it's not really a column. It's a, it's a day. How would you describe it, Craig, what you're doing right here? 
It's different than your past columns that you've written. Yeah, it is. It, it's, a, it's an eyewitness account. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm careful to certainly give much, a much fuller account than anyone else has given by, by a factor of six or seven. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, other people are turning in 500 pages or 500 words a day, and I'm, I'm, I'm turning in 4,000 words a day. So, yeah. and a lot of it, and about probably three quarters of that every day is actual reporting of what happens in court, of the words spoken, you know, and fairly, and, and I hope very fair reporting, giving, you know, in places verbatim, in other places paraphrased or summarized, but giving a blow-by-blow -blow account of what actually happens in court. Then a thousand, pay, then a thousand words are a comment, a comment, usually sometimes interspersed in square, beginning and end, um, of comment on explaining what's happening and putting it in perspective and explaining some of the legal issues and terms. But, and, and I mean, to be honest, it, you know, it is tough, but maintaining that kind of output every day is not easy at all. Uh, uh, and I have been, um, uh, uh, you know, I have been on occasion um, struggling. I, I, I haven't, I haven't failed. I, I mean, I've, I've managed every day to get it out, but it very, very often happens. I'm, I'm, I'm finishing because the court starts at ten every day, uh, and I I booked this room which is literally five minutes walk from the court. But it it happens very often. But at ten to ten I, in the morning, I finished the report of the day before, and at ten to ten in the morning I press publish, and then I literally run to the court and start and start again. So it it, it has been very very tough. Well, who does the editing? So you write these four thousand word uh, retrospectives the day before. 4,000, that's a lot, right? And mm -hmm. you put them out, does somebody edit for you just to, you know, here and there, or you just do it yourself and send it in? I, I mean, I, I try and get it finished and leave myself half an hour, 40 minutes for poop reading and everything, editing, and, and, and I, I, I do it all myself. I do have, um, and I have moderators on the blog who moderate the comments and things. And if there are obvious typographical errors left or something, they'll go back and, and change those but they don't they don't edit for sense or anything along those lines so i, I urge people to uh, subscribe uh to uh, support this work because nobody else is doing it uh you're one of the few i know that uh you're friendly with one of the closest friends that julian assange has has had uh, defenders of, uh, of julian assange no one's been more uh, consistent and vehement uh and as cogent as you have and uh, these daily reports by you uh, certainly are should be supported so you go to craig uh, murray dot uh, uk and you read the columns you read his stories and you can subscribe right there you know make a small donation to keep this going because it's not going to end when this ends in the next week and a half you're going to continue to write uh, there's going to be appeals uh, i guess this is a uh, a long uh, term uh, situation for you a uh, plan for you to stay on top of it, Craig. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I mean, as long as, um, as long as this goes, I, I, I will keep, keep covering it. Of course, what, when, when the hearings and trials aren't on, I, I write about other stuff as well, and, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and also I, I, I do bits and pieces of work for WikiLeaks occasionally, you know, uh, I, I, and, and. With other whistleblowers as well, we we have a kind of whistleblowers union. We we, we cooperate with each other. So, um, 
yeah, no, no, it won't stop. And I should say, um, people are very, you don't have to subscribe. I mean, I'm grateful when people subscribe, but you, but it doesn't cost anything to come to the website and read. There's no firewall, there's no advertising, and people are free to just come and read. And the other thing I'd say is that, you know, I, I do this in order to spread knowledge and spread enlightenment and give people a chance to look at and maybe consider a point of view they haven't considered before or whatever. Um, so anyone is free to copy and paste or, or, or republish or, or do it, translate, do anything they want. I, I'm putting it out there. I, I'm not keeping a, a copyright or ownership over it. Well, what's important, Craig, what you do here, um, uh, unlike anybody else, it, 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 I think it could have influence on the people who are totally in the dark or have prejudged uh, Julian Assange. That is the American public. The American public is totally out. They have no idea. Uh, because uh, he's been smeared so much uh, from the very uh, beginning by both the uh, UK and, and the US government. And people here, are, they don't know. And I think that you really shine a lot of light on this case and on uh, Julian Assange's real character. Tell us um, about Julian Assange. Uh, for those who don't know him, because this is a uh, this is not the regular audience. We're going to an American audience here. Uh, tell us uh, what you know about him personally, uh, the kind of individual. You said he's the smartest person uh, you've ever met. So uh, kind of a riff on that for a minute, if you would. No, uh, I mean, Julian is, is very bright. He's very concerned politically. His, his political focus is um, slightly unusual. It doesn't easily fit into narrow political structures. I, I mean, he's not an American, he's an Australian, but in, in American terms, you, you would say he's neither a Republican nor, nor a Democrat. He, he's not, his politics aren't party politics, let me put it that way. He's broadly libertarian in many of his values, um, quite left-wing on issues of social justice, um, but probably not a socialist. I don't think he'd call himself a socialist. He's, he's, but his passion is for openness in government. You know, he thinks that there's far too much mass surveillance. There's far too much secrecy, far too much government secrecy. Um, and there's far too much secrecy also in corporations. And that the, the average citizen doesn't have power because the average citizen doesn't have the knowledge uh, to know, to make sensible political decisions and to make sensible decisions about their life because so much is hidden from them by governments and so much is hidden from them by by corporations uh, so, so julian's um main focus is, is in getting more and more information to the average citizen to, so that democracy becomes a much more meaningful concept because people are informed uh, so, so that I, I would say that's the the basis of his philosophy which, which is um, pretty simple, but then he has a fantastic grasp of technology and of the internet and, and of the, the ways that can be done and of the ways you know, greater citizen knowledge can be structured. So, so um, yeah, no, he's a, he's a very interesting man. Uh, and he's, he's good company and very, um, uh, very, very, very uh, friendly, very easygoing. And the, the, the things which the media have printed about him um which are are simply completely untrue and are astonishing lies you know for example that his his personal hygiene is bad and and, and that kind of thing you know is in fact there was a, there was an article here in 
the Mail, which is I think Britain's biggest selling newspaper nowadays, yesterday, which was attacking Julian Assange. And one of the things it said was, you know, it is a well-known fact that his personal hygiene is bad. Well, that's just complete nonsense. You know, I mean, just absolutely untrue. His, um, his personal hygiene is good, just like any other person. He, you know, he's, <laughs> he brushes his teeth and bathes and everything, or showers, just as often as, as anyone else, uh, you know, every day, um, sometimes several times a day. Uh, the, the, so, so much it astonishes me the from the small things like that to the huge things like these ridiculous allegations he was facing in sweden some sort of strange honey trap thing going on um uh, there's governments have done so much to vilify and calumnize him and of course the media has joined in uh, and um uh, and, and it's simply not true when, when you know him the, these things are simply untrue well, the same, let me, you know, the uh, Crown Prosecutor Services, James Lewis, those are the same people that um, um, prolong the investigation by the Swedes. The same, the, same, the same agents that are working on behalf of the U.S. government were the ones that, fa that had Sweden prolong the, this fabricated uh, investigation. And emails that uh, were uh, acquired by uh, Stefano Morizzi absolutely adduce to the authenticity of that. So here they are complicit in him being in this position now, and now they're prosecuting him on behalf of the US government. Something very bizarre about that. It is, it's very peculiar indeed. And, and also the fact that people just don't know this. You know, people don't know that because there's no evidence and because basically the Swedish allegations were nonsense when you looked at of the details, Swedish prosecutors wanted to drop it nearly 10 years ago. And the British government was saying to them, no, please don't drop it. We, we need these charges. Because, of course, they, they were just being used to try to get Assange into prison so he could be sent to the States um, for the Chelsea Manning revelations, which is now what exactly what we are seeing. And one of the peculiar things was, you know, for years when people said, oh, he's in the embassy to avoid going to Sweden, we said, no, he's not. He's in the embassy because he thinks he'll be sent to America because of a Chelsea man, and they said, no, you're lying, you're nonsense, it's not true, of course he won't be sent to America. And now what happens is they get him, and they're trying, not trying to send him to Sweden, they're trying to send him to America over the Chelsea Manning uh, uh, revelations, which we, we always knew would be the case. Uh, yeah, and, and now, look, there, there's been so many uh, different angles uh, over the past couple of weeks that you've highlighted. Uh, the, the one with the, the psychiatrist, that got in the day before yesterday that testified and they tried to uh, challenge uh, uh, his uh, authenticity as, as a psychiatrist. And then they brought up uh, something with the razor blade, which you were reluctant to talk about. Could, could you uh, quick, uh, you know, give us a little bit of light on that exchange that happened in the courtroom? Yeah, I mean, that was astonishing. And it's typical in the sense that you've got Professor Michael Kopelman, who's um, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at, at King's College London and the former Head of Psychology at Guy's and St. Thomas's, which is you know, the best hospital in London. So he's a, uh, um, and is on all kinds of World Health Organization psychiatric bodies. Um, so he's as distinguished as you can get. And, and, the, and the prosecution are trying to say he's not, um, he's not qualified to diagnose depression, <laughs> which is quite astonishing. And one of the things they said was that um, Julian Assange had fooled him. Julian Assange was malingering and inventing it and had fooled him. And they attacked him because in his medical report, 
uh, he had mentioned that Julian Assange said that he had been going to kill himself and he had hidden a, a razor blade in his prison cell to kill himself, but that the prison guards had found the razor blade and taken it away. Um, and what the prosecution was saying was, this is an example of the professor being uh, stupid, in effect, and, and not being competent, because actually there never was such a razor blade. And Julian fooled the, the, president, the, the professor with this story about a non-existent razor blade. But um, it was like a scene out of a, a legal drama on TV. It was like a scene out of The Good Wife or one of those legal dramas you have in the States. Because while the professor was giving evidence, the defense managed to get to the jail and actually get a copy of the, of the charge sheet. Uh, and in fact, I have, it, I have it sitting in front of me here. Um, oh, there the, it is. That, that's it. That's a copy of the charge sheet. And the, um, uh, and the charge sheet, this is the charge sheet from the jail where they, the prison officers say they were searching his cell and they found he'd hidden half a razor blade. Um, and the prosecution were trying to claim this had never happened. But the, the fact is, of course, uh, the, you know, the prosecution of the US and the UK governments, this is their prison. There's no way they didn't know that had happened. They were lying. They were trying to make the professor looking, look stupid by saying there was no razor blade when there was a razor blade. And they knew damn well there was a razor blade. So that, that's just an example of the kind of abusive process that yeah. we're we're seeing you, you know and it's um extremely frustrating i think prosecution did i don't know how the prosecution managed to get the charge sheet out of the prison they did very uh, they did very well there but uh that, really, i don't know how the defense managed to get it the defense did, did very, very well how do they get that charge sheet i gotta tell you these are they i like this guy fitzgerald i think he's doing a, fa a fantastic job uh, what's yeah. your assessment of his uh abilities yeah, i mean he's a great guy he's a very very decent guy he's um He's very old-fashioned, you know, in his approach. He's very courtly. He's uh, very serious. He's a real gentleman. He's polite to everybody, even when he's cross-examining witnesses to the other side. He does so in a very polite way. But he's, uh, you know, his logic is ruthless, and his ability to argue is, is ruthless, and he's very eloquent. Um, he's, uh, he's a complete contrast, of course, with the prosecution. Um, lawyers who are aggressive and rude and unpleasant, but but intemperate. They're but, intemperate. But, right? Yeah, yeah, very bad tempered and, and and basically nasty. If they were, if this were a jury, I've got no doubt because the jury would hate the way the prosecution are behaving and the way they they hound witnesses and, and, and they're rude to them and they insult them and try to anger them to try to put them off their testimony. Um, you know, that, that wouldn't play well with a jury at all. But of course, there is no jury. There's only one judge, Beretza, who will make up her, her mind, except I think she made it up a long time ago. How visible is it, Craig, uh, from uh, your vantage point, looking down? I guess it's the same setup. You get, it looks like you know, you're up there in a stage yep. looking down. Uh, the uh, prosecute, the, not the prosecution, but the U.S. government's um, uh, representatives uh, from the Justice Department sitting behind. Are they still sitting behind and are they like passing notes? How visible are, is their role in shaping the prosecution here? No, that, that's one thing they've learned. They're not here this time. Uh, no, last time they were physically there sitting behind. Um, whereas this time they're watching on a video link. 
and they're sending their instructions um, electronically. Uh, and you've got a couple of ladies sitting behind, you know, with laptops who are getting the instructions from the Justice Department and then writing notes on bits of paper and handing them forth. But, but I think they learned their lesson that it was very bad publicity for them to be seen to be their directing events. So the, uh, uh, the Justice Department have a video link. I also learned that William Barr, because everyone, because they, you know, the judge didn't want um, uh, Amnesty International and all these people watching on video, it's an extremely secure system. It's not your a normal. It's not like Zoom or a commercial system. It's a very very secure system for for who can get into it. It's a you know it's a, it's a government classification secure system there. But I learned that William Barr has his own personal access in his own personal link. So so Barr is watching in in in, in Washington as well. Well, uh, you you've been very critical of a one uh, Gordon uh, Kronberg. Can you? Uh... Tell us your concerns about Gordon Cromberg from the Justice Department. Yeah, I mean, um, the Washington Post has published, and I believe it's true, that um, you know, most people in the Justice Department were against doing this on First Amendment grounds. They said, you, you know, this is an attack on the First Amendment. Too. So very few people were, were willing to take it on. Uh, so the guy they've got um, is uh, an assistant secretary called Gordon Kronberg um, uh, at the Justice Department. He's a guy with a very dodgy past, but he gave a lecture at the Cato Institute years ago, and he shocked the people at the Cato Institute because he was too right-wing for them. And as you know, the Cato Institute is a very, very right-wing think tank. And um, are you kidding me? He shocked them. <laughs> he shocked the Cato Institute by being too right-wing. What 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 he said there in that lecture was. But um, basically, you can't always find people guilty in a court of law. So it's very important that you have the ability to use confiscation of um, uh, you know, profits of crime, that you can take people's houses and cars and things off them without ever finding them guilty. Because he said, I, you know, I need to be able to punish people even if I can't prove they've done anything wrong. And uh, even the Cato Institute didn't think it was necessarily good for him to be punishing people when he couldn't prove anything against them in, in court. And the other thing, of course, was, um, you know, Kronberg had this reputation. It was how he started his career, his reputation for going in very hard and um, uh, confiscating uh, without anyone being convicted, confiscating property and money and vehicles of people he alleged were drug dealers, but were never convicted of, of drug dealing. And of course, the point is, that was almost all directed um, at the black community uh, and at the Latino community. There, you know, there weren't many white people whose, um, <laughs> whose property Kronberg was confiscating. Um, and there, were, uh, there was another example um, which was sent to me uh, of an expression he used uh, about a black lawyer uh, in Washington early in his career. And it's an expression which I'm not going to repeat, but, but it wasn't good at all. His, his explanation of this, which was contained in an article published in the Washington Post, he has an alarming Past. He's also been directly accused of Islamophobia 
and um, another Washington law firm uh, tried to get him taken out of a case by, by submitting to a judge a formal complaint against him of, of Islamophobia. And he's been heard to joke in court about, oh, you know, this witness doesn't have any fingernails left, so we don't want to see him on the stand and, uh, uh, and that kind of thing. You know, he, he really seems to be a very, very nasty piece of work. Now, interestingly, most of this you can Google. You, you Google Gordon Cromberg fingernails or Google Gordon Cromberg Islamophobia um, and you'll find stuff. If you Google Gordon Cromberg since this state, since this case started, somebody sent me the information by email um, at the start of this case and I immediately Googled and I found an old Washington Post article and I found the detail of what he'd called a man. Um, about two hours later, when I thought I'd write something about it, I repeated the Google search and it all vanished. All of it had vanished from the internet completely. Fortunately, the, um, uh, the person who sent me the information also sent me a, uh, a text of the article from the Washington Post and the, um, and the date of it. So um, I'm going to get someone in the States to actually go down the library and get a physical copy of the Washington Post and, and we'll, we'll, we'll find that one up again. I think I can arrange that. Uh, that shouldn't be a big problem. I have friends that work at the Washington Post. Uh, but uh, the big problem is he's, uh, is, is the unseen hand or maybe the seen hand that's uh, engineering this entire prosecution. He's supervising it. Is that it? Very much so. And not only that, the, um, uh, there's an agreement between the British and American governments that in an extradition case, bringing the charge. So, for example, Kronberg has put in an affidavit. He's put in five different affidavits. Those are accepted as evidence, um, and that includes affidavits where he said, you know, that the maximum security prisoner in Florida or Colorado is like a kind of holiday camp, all these wonderful programs that prisoners have, and it's really good, and nobody's in solitary confinement, and all kinds of straight lies. But he, he, can't, be called, he can't be called for cross-examination. The defense have no right under these extradition proceedings to cross-examine him on these claims he he makes. And there, um, there are other witnesses from the United States um, that they, they brought in their own, uh, from the Bureau of Prisons, they brought in a couple of witnesses explaining, you know, how lovely maximum security prisons are in the United States. And those people, the defense isn't allowed to cross-examine them either. I've, I've, seen, uh, I've seen one of the witnesses the other day um, actually say that uh, that the conditions are really nice and not, but he had never been to that prison in Colorado. Uh, yeah. They asked him, well, how do you know that the conditions are nice? And he said that he got it from a justice department memo. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And in, in fact, he, he said specifically, he got it from one of Gordon Kronberg's affidavit. Uh, uh, and it's Kronberg has been putting in all this information um, about how, what they're basically saying, because you can't extradite someone from the UK if they'll be subject to, you know, um, long-term solitary confinement, which undoubtedly Julian Assange would be. But they they they, they now call it SAMs, S-A-M, Special Administrative Measures, I think it's called, that they hold people like who are national security prisoners. They hold them under in the United States, and that involves being. Um, I'm sure for the first one year. You are locked in your cell 24 hours a day. You are only allowed out three times a week to take a shower. That's the only time you're allowed out of your cell for the first year. 
but it's not called, they say it's not called solitary confinement, so it's not solitary confinement, but, uh, uh, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, and, but the, the facts of the matter, the facts of how these prisons are, are, are really quite well known, but that's not what the Bureau of Prisons say. And what the judge is saying is, you know, we have to take the official version. We have to take the word of the United States government for this. So is, she, is there anything about her that shows any promise of being unbiased at all the rest of the way? No, I mean, really, the only thing about it, when, when they were, the only time I've ever seen her look even sort of vaguely human was when the, the testimony, El Masri wasn't allowed to testify. Defense is read into, of their testimony is read into the record of the court. They themselves haven't testified. I understand they're doing that to Noam Chomsky. They're not going to allow him to testify. They will just read a summary of his evidence into the record of the court. Um, but when El Masri, the, the uh, extraordinary rendition and torture victim, when his testimony was being read into the court, even though the defense were forced to leave out the, the, the details of the torture, that testimony was so um, moving and, and horrible about what happened to him in the extraordinary rendition process that I thought that undoubtedly the judge was affected by it for a while. You, you know, you, you could see she was um, uh, choking back emotion when, when that was read out. Um, so she is human. She has some human traits in there, but um, I mean, she just comes over as a very right-wing person who just who takes an extreme authoritarian security state position on on every issue and every ruling. So I'm I'm not at all hopeful. And and of course she's the sole judge. Nobody nobody else has a say but her. We are talking with Craig Murray, a former ambassador from the UK to Uzbekistan, also diplomat in Western Africa for many years. Uh, Lee Poland had written many books. Uh, my favorite, of course, is uh, the one on uh, Sikander Burns, uh, which is a great book. You can get that. At, you go to your, Craig's uh, Twitter account, Craig Murray uh, Org, at his Twitter, and the very the pinned, the pinned tweet is uh, Sikander Burns, which is, I've read three or four times. It's a great book, and I want to talk about that with you down the road again, uh, Craig. But... Um, I, I just uh, a couple more of the uh, witnesses. Uh, Tom Durkin uh, talking about Assange getting a fair trial here. How effective was his testimony? He was very good. He's really um, very sharp, and he carried a lot of weight. It was quite interesting. The the um, the prosecution were attacked um, Lewis, the the, the other um, uh, Eric Lewis, the other. American attorney giving similar evidence, the prosecution attacked him quite hard. Whereas with, with Durkin, they seemed to give him a lot of respect and they weren't really able to um, make much of a hole in his, uh, uh, in his defense and uh, in, uh, in his testimony. And he, he explained how, how things really are in the United States, how, how the system really works, how grand juries never refuse to... Uh, to indict, how uh, Julian Assange won't get a fair trial because of, you know, there's been so much indoctrination and because of the way that juries are selected and because of a particular role of the Eastern District of Virginia. It, there was a lot of meat there. Uh, but of course, he's, you know, he's been a, an attorney for 40 odd years and is a very distinguished attorney. And I, I understand as well that 
I, I didn't know this, and I've been told this, and it may be wrong information, but I, I believe it's correct. Um, but Durkin is, is actually, a, you know, he's a Republican and a Republican donor. He, he's not coming from the left um, angle on this, but, but his, his very compelling evidence as a very, very experienced attorney, you know, of high seniority, um, went, went down very well indeed with the court. A couple of the other um, witnesses that uh, stood out, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, were you able to uh, see his testimony or was it read in or could you see it on a monitor? No, I saw I saw Daniel on the monitor, and he and he was cross-examined and answered questions, and 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 he of course Ellsberg's a brilliant man, um, and even now he's eighty-nine years old, and, and he's still, at, he's eighty-nine years old, and he was giving evidence at half past five in the morning California time, um, but he uh, he still was absolutely brilliant. He really was brilliant, and he totally rejected the notion. That there was any real difference between him and Julian Assange, and this idea that so-called liberals are trying to say Ellsberg was good, but Assange is bad. He said he left in a lot of names of informers and spies. He said he even left in the name of, of a CIA secret CIA agent, uh, a Korean who worked for the CIA, who had been involved in executing a in, in assassinating a senior CIA a senior Korean politician. And the guy was a friend of his, but he didn't even take his name out. He left in hundreds of names, he said, in the Pentagon Papers. So, so much of what the uh, prosecution are claiming to try to make a difference between the Pentagon Papers and Chelsea Manning stuff, he said there is no difference. No, it's very, very similar. And he said he recognizes the same arguments people said when he published the Pentagon Papers. Hundreds of people would be killed. It would damage American interests. All this stuff was said, exactly the same thing that was said about Julian and Chelsea Manning. He said in both cases, it's not true. He, you know, he gave, he was very, very strong. He, he, he really was. I, I, I do admire Daniel very much. And I, I got a feeling the prosecution uh, did not like go heavy on him because he's such an icon. Is that the way uh, you saw it? I think they, I think they did try to go heavy on him, but they couldn't. You know, they just couldn't get anywhere. They couldn't lay a glove on him. So, so they uh, eventually they decided, I think, that because most most people have been, you know, many people prosecution have cross-examined. They've tried to cross-examine cross them for between two and four hours to put them under really heavy pressure. But with um, with Ellsberg, they they didn't cross-examine him very long at all because it was very obvious quite quite soon. You know, that they weren't getting anywhere. And I think they decided the longer Ellsberg was on the stand, the more it would damage your prosecution. So they, they wrapped up their cross-examination really quite quickly. Yeah, I, I, uh, he was great. That same day, John Getz, uh, it's already been like 10 days ago, John Getz uh, came out and talked about the, um, how uh, the rigorous redaction uh, process that uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks employs. Can you talk about that, Craig? Yeah, we've had, a, we've had a number of witnesses who were all part of that redaction process. When, when they started together with media partners, um, they started together with media partners, including the New York Times, to redact any names that might be in danger out of publication um, uh, before things were published. Uh, and Gertz was one of many people who were actually involved in that redaction process, who testified to how serious that process was and how personally committed and concerned Julian was to make sure no names were published that would get anybody killed or, or put anyone in serious harm's way. Um, and then how eventually, of course, that all went wrong when journalists from a Guardian newspaper 
published the password to the unencrypted files uh, in a book. Uh, stupidly, I, I don't think he did it out of badness. I, I think they just weren't, weren't thinking properly. Um, but uh, but no, that that was good information. And um, yeah, no, no, Gertz was an impressive witness. And, and, but but that entire thing there that WikiLeaks had protected uh, individuals, they did not publish the names, and it was other. It was it was somebody else that did, and it was the Guardian, and also. Uh, there were other servers that kept and still have uh, the material from back then on their websites. Yeah, and yeah we, I mean, we, we've heard that in great detail, that WikiLeaks was trying to redact names and make everything safe before they published it. Then The Guardian published the password in a book. Um, then eventually that got put together with a file to which it was a password got found on the internet. And then things started to be published, first of all, in a torrent or two, then on a couple of obscure websites, then on Pirate on, on, torrent on Pirate Bay, which, of course, was very popular. And then Cryptome published the full unredacted files before WikiLeaks did. Um, and uh, neither Cryptone hasn't ever been um, prosecuted. Nobody from Pirate Bay has ever been prosecuted. And, and the Wayback Machine has had all this material on since the very day it was published, and they've never been prosecuted. Uh, the only person being prosecuted is Julian. So, so that, you know, that's quite interesting evidence. It, uh, it really is. And, you know, there's so many good witnesses. Kerry, Kerry Shankman, I want to get to him before we uh, come to an end. Uh, Kerry Shankman, who talked about the Espionage Act, is an expert on the uh, Espionage Act. Can you summarize uh, what Kerry had uh, uh, <laughs> testimony uh, yeah. on that day regarding the Espionage Act and how it affected I mean, Assange. What, what Kerry Schenkman was basically saying was that governments over the years, presidents especially over the years, have, have often considered using the Espionage Act against journalists and against publications, um, but that they've never done it because of the First Amendment. They've always backed off. Um, and what was really important and this was absolutely vital, but it wasn't what Kerry Schenkman was saying, it was what the prosecution was saying and cross-examining him, which is absolutely vital. What the prosecution said was that the Rosen judgment, which was the, the IPAC um, case, the Rosen judgment said that you can prosecute journalists under the Espionage and you can prosecute publishers under the Espionage Act. Um, and prosecution also said that if you look at the New York Times judgment in the Washington Post case, the Supreme Court said, they say, in the dicta, in the explanation given by three of the Supreme Court judges in the, in the New York Times uh, case over the Pentagon Papers, three of the judges stated that the New York Times could have been prosecuted under the Espionage Act. So the American government was openly claiming they could, have published, they could have prosecuted the New York Times under the Espionage Act, claiming they can publish any journalist under the Espionage Act if he possesses any classified information. And that's a huge threat to freedom of press. And the, and the US government was arguing this very, very openly in court. And neither, because you know, neither the New York Times nor the Washington Post or, or any of them were paying any attention, nobody has, has noticed that, that the, uh, you know, the practice of... They were saying, no, you're wrong, Schenkman. The First Amendment doesn't apply because it's national security. So we can, we can prosecute 
any journalist who obtains national security information. Uh, and the, the representatives of the US government were taking that position very, very openly in court. And it, it astonishes me that the, the, the US media haven't picked up on that. It really does astonish me. Now, is, is the Crown Prosecutor Services actually subscribe to, to this notion, or are they just mouthpieces like being, you know, like, uh, like well, I, I, being handled from behind? Do they actually subscribe? Uh, do they really believe in, in the things that they're saying here? Well, the, the extradition process is such, and the treaty with the United States on extradition is such, that they are just acting as agents for the United States government. You know, there is no independent view of the British government in the mix. We, we don't hear what the British government thinks, but the Crown Prosecution Service simply represents the United States government in this process. It's very, very weird. It's, it's the way that Britain's um, extradition treaty with the United States works. And yet we can't extradite anyone from the United States. It's very, very peculiar. Uh, it makes no, makes no sense at all. This was, this was Tony Blair and, and George Bush, and they, um, uh, this, um, the, the, the legislation dates from 2003 and, and the treaty from 2007. And this was done in the post 9-11 war on terror atmosphere because they were just thinking about moving Al-Qaeda people around. And, and, you know, and that led to, to such a huge attack on, on human rights and whatever. And so this, this is awful legislation. You know, in the UK, the legislation under which this is being done is terrible, terrible anti-human rights legislation. But, they, but it's coming to the States. You know, they, the American government is now claiming the First Amendment doesn't apply at all in any national security case. Um, and they're openly claiming that. So uh, you know, the ramifications of this are, are enormous. Well, they, they have made a case. They've done this from the very beginning, uh, witness here and there, that this is a political case. And in that extradition treaty, it, it's forbidden to send uh, people over to this country from the UK under that extradition treaty uh, for political reasons, uh, if it is a political case. Uh, they've made this clear. Don't you think over the past three weeks that this is a political case? I think it's clearly a political case. I mean, it's mostly a political case because Julian Assange is acting from political motives and he was his publishing this material was a political act, and it was a political act designed to stop war crimes and to stop war. It, it was it was done with a public policy motivation. It wasn't done for money or or, or for any other kind of gain. It, it was a political act. So it is a political offence. The defence has added another layer to that by trying to say that it was a a political decision by Trump to prosecute. Um, and yeah, I suppose you could say that's true. I'm. I'm not especially fond of that argument myself because it's not necessary. Because the um, uh, the treaty doesn't say that you can't extradite where the prosecution is politically motivated. What it says is you can't pros prosecute for, for you can't extradite for a political offence. And the offence, i.e., the publication of these documents, which of course isn't an offence anyway, it's First Amendment protected. But if you call it an offence was politically motivated. It was a political act. And it's the act of publishing, and whether that was political, is actually much more important than whether or not Trump took a political decision. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not quite certain why the defense has wasted so much time uh, on that particular angle. But, um, uh, but there you are.
the, the contribution by WikiLeaks is uh, monumental. Uh, John, uh, I think, Sloboda, uh, and uh, both he and uh, Dean Yates uh, from Reuters uh, both uh, spelled out some of the um, work that WikiLeaks uh, had uh, published uh, over the last uh, 10 years, particularly going back 10 years ago. Uh, what, did, what did you see uh, from witnesses like them, Craig? No, that's true. I, I mean, it's actually been a you know tremendous reminder of just how much WikiLeaks have done. And, and of course, this is all about Afghanistan and, and Iraq and the war logs and the Guantanamo detainee beatings, the uh, details. Of, uh, but then there's you know all the information from all around the world from the diplomatic cables uh, detailing um, uh, American crimes and political corruption and the deals the American government makes with politicians abroad. But it, it, it has been, it's been fantastic to be reminded of just how valuable WikiLeaks is, because of course that's something else which has been deliberately gone out of the, out of the public narrative. I, I just want to like, before we leave, uh, Craig, uh, the, the atmosphere inside there, you've been there. How does Julian look inside the courtroom? Uh, how, how is his father doing? Uh, what's the spirit? Uh, in, in that courtroom, and, and particularly, how, how does Julian health-wise uh, appear to you compared to the last time we saw him in February? Um, he looks much better than when we saw him in February. He's been out of solitary confinement, um, which since about June, I think. Um, and, and since he came out of solitary confinement, he's become much, much better. He's put a little weight back on, and he he, he doesn't look so much like a zombie. You know, he, he he's uh, able to hold conversations with people and, and be and look a little more cheerful. Obviously, you know, his, his death is drawn a great bit of strength, deal of strength from seeing people. And also, the um, uh, the court itself is not so oppressive. I mean, from where I'm, the he's not in a, a complete like glass cage like he was in uh, uh, in Belmarsh. Although he's got a, although the dock is glass fronted. It's open at the top. So, for example, from where I am in the gallery, I can look down on him and he can look at me with no glass between us at all. Uh, and because also the, the public gallery's not got glass. Oh, really? So, in other yeah. words, it's opener and, and you can see the judge and you can see... Uh, yeah, without looking for How many glass. people are in that courtroom? Are there reporters there? Uh, is uh, it the same? No, no? The reporters are off in a video room somewhere. Um, but there are lots. There are lots of lawyers. Um, there may be twenty people in the courtroom, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, and, and it's not. But uh, it's quite an oppressive. You know, the judges' rulings have been so one-sided, and the whole process is so one-sided. But the, the defence lawyers are genuinely angry a lot of the time. You can see you know, there's real proper anger from the defence lawyers m much of the time, which is interesting to. Um, uh, to see, but we knew that. I mean, we we always knew we were up against uh, an oppressive and unfair system. So, so there's no there's no real surprise there. But um, and, and of course, it's it's very horrible that you know if Julian is sent to the states and does end up in one of these terrible maximum security prisons, he'll be in solitary confinement probably for the rest of his life. Uh, you know, life will be a living hell. So having that horror thought at the back of your mind the whole time. Um, I, I'm always amazed his father manages to be quite so, um, uh, not cheerful, but quite so steadfast and not let it get him down. He, he, his father's 
John seems to be very strong and I, I spend all days you know all day every day I'm with John so uh, just like you were the last time the, yeah. the first four days uh, back in February you were there sitting next to him uh, yeah yeah and no, I've been sitting next to him every day and then during lunch uh, you guys would sit around. Yeah, he's a remarkable uh, individual. And I do like uh, Fitzgerald. He's a very phlegmatic uh, guy in spite of the odds that he's facing. He just goes right on through with it without get, he's unflappable. You know, he just keeps moving. And uh, and so does the other lawyer whose name I can't think of right now. Mark, Mark Summers. Yeah, yeah, yeah Summers is very good. I think he's well represented. It doesn't matter if he had uh, Clarence Darrell and William Kunstler in 108 hundred great uh, uh, lawyers in the past, uh, they're in a situation where it's already predetermined. That's the way I look at it. And that's why I saw it back in February. And from reading your uh, daily output, uh, I feel exactly the same. And I don't know how you feel about that, but I think you've made it clear that you do believe that. Yeah. No, that's not changed. I, I, I think the only... Uh, the only thing that make any difference is if there's a change in political decision from the top, because you know this judge is obeying political orders. So, um, and I have no reason to believe there will be a change, but that that's uh, that's the only thing that would make a change. You know, it's not nothing that happens in that courtroom is going to affect the decision. Right. So uh, this uh, give us a uh, up upcoming is what we got one week left of this, and then the prosecution puts on their case. How is it working? Two weeks left. No, we we have one week left, and then that's it. Um, and they're not even, the judge has said that the public aren't going to hear the closing arguments. They're not going to make, she's not going to allow closing speeches. Uh, they just have to submit their closing arguments in writing and that's it. So we, the witnesses finish the end of next week and, and that's it basically. And the prosecution witnesses we're not going to see because you're not allowed to cross-examine them. So they, they won't be giving evidence at all. Their evidence just goes in in writing to the judge uh, and the defense can't challenge it. So we're looking at a, at a, uh you know, what's tantamount to the Supreme Court uh, overturning whatever uh, ruling she puts out there, if it's negative for Julian, uh, we're yeah. kind of banking I'm, on that. I'm very confident about that. I mean, I'm really very confident. I, I, if you ask me, if you ask me to bet money, I, I, I would bet large amount of money that what's going to happen is this judge will say he should be extradited, uh, you know, um, and then it will go to appeal, and on appeal, the high court will um, will overturn that uh, I, I, because the the case, you know, legally the the, the case stinks, um, and a lot of the rulings of this judge have, have been. And once you get to the high court, you've got much. I, I guess it's similar to the Supreme Court in the states, in the sense, you know, you once you get judges of that seniority, you can't promote them anymore. Um, so they they are independent because they're at the top of their profession and no one can do any favors for them. No one can get rid of them. So, um, uh, so they're able to, to take a, a properly independent view. And I think once you get very senior judges who aren't so subject to government influence, I, I think this will just get chucked out. I, but, but the problem is of course, before we get to that stage, I mean, this, this case has run for 18 months. Um, uh, and it'll be at least a year, I guess, before any appeal is heard. So before we get to that stage, the judge has said she'll give her judgment in January, in this case, then another year before an appeal starts. So that would be you know, January 2022 before an appeal starts. Then maybe a year and a half for that case to run. So then June, 
you know, but the earliest the earliest Julian would get out of on this basis is getting on for two thousand and four. So uh, uh, you know, that's so it's the, like he's spending five years in jail. Yeah. It's it's pre it's it's pre uh, it's pre-trial detention in the U.S. Five years, and yeah. then if he comes over here, another year. It, I mean, it's just been such a, a nightmare odyssey uh, for this uh, great uh, heroic uh, journalist uh, publisher. And I know it's difficult for you and his, for his family and his friends uh, to have to witness this on, on, on a regular basis. I mean, it's tough on me and I'm way over here and I've only known him for three or four years. You've known him for a long time. He's very close and, and um, whatever we can do, Craig, I don't know, except for uh, hopefully uh, he'll either get a pardon, which I'm not banking on, or uh, there's a change in the administration and then they like withdraw the, um, the complaint. I don't know, but we gotta be, uh, we gotta go forward. What about your case, Craig, before we wrap up, you still have an outstanding case uh, in, in uh, Edinburgh or is it in Glasgow, uh, your particular case? Do you wanna talk about that or just leave it? No, I'll, I'll briefly say that, um, yeah, no, the government's trying to um, shut me up and stop stop me writing and they trying to put me in jail for contempt of court for basically writing that the Alex Salmon case which is you know a whole different subject I won't go into but the Alex Salmon case was a conspiracy uh, and he wasn't guilty and in the end the jury found it was a conspiracy and the jury found he wasn't guilty so I wrote the truth but um, but the uh, it, the powers that be don't like the articles I wrote so they're they're accusing me of contempt of court for writing that because um, they're saying my articles could have influenced the jury. Uh, so they're, um, uh, they're trying to put me in jail for two years for that. That, that comes up in, um, in, in Evidence January. It's quite interesting. You, you know, I mean, Julian, of course, what's happening to Julian is far worse than what's happening to me. But in both cases, we're being, no one's claiming anything we wrote was a lie. Everyone's saying it was true. I'm saying, I'm, what they're saying to me is, you wrote too much of the truth. You shouldn't have done that because uh, you could have influenced the jury. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's all very strange, but that, that comes up in January. But also, Randy, at some stage, we've got to do this again, and we've got to discuss how on earth the United States has managed to come up with a political system that means the choice, the effective choice for president is always between two of the nastiest people in the entire country. That, that's very strange. Yeah. It's between, as, as Cornell West said, a... Uh, neoliberal disaster uh, and a neo-fascist um, uh, catastrophe. It's, it's really, you know, what do you do with these two? It's, it's, it's as bad as 2016. Uh, you know, heads I, uh, heads I lose, tails I lose. Uh, it doesn't matter, man. It's, uh, it's, really, it's really a bad choice. And I don't know uh, what I'm going to do on election day or if it matters. Uh, yeah, it's horrible. It's fucking horrible. I haven't used that word in a long time, but this is really... Uh, my, my, my advice, Andy, is on election day, go down a bar and <laughs> forget about it. <laughs> I'm going to see you at that uh, that place over there by Parliament, that yeah, old yeah. <laughs> bar that was downstairs uh, way back on February, what was it? February 22nd, when you gave uh -huh. this wonderful speech, as usual, not using notes, Greg. You just go up there and speak off the top of your head and you know, just a little advice for people out there. I don't like to, I don't, I never, I've never done my comedy with notes. I've never done the same act twice. It's got me into a lot of trouble, but it keeps me interested. 
if I'm doing something off the top of my head. Is that the way you feel about uh, not using prepared remarks? Yeah, completely. I, I mean, I always give a speech off the top of my head. I never be, because if you don't know what's coming next, the audience don't know what's coming next either, and it makes it all much more fun. And there's nothing worse than politicians with these glass screens in front of them with the words on, you know, so they're only visible from one side, reading away uh, uh, some, some lot of rubbish that's been written for them by somebody else. Uh, you know, speak, speak from the heart. Get, get up there and tell them what you think. That, that's my advice to anyone giving a talk about anything. Well, I don't know. In the House of Commons, they seem to be talking off the top of their head. Certainly not in the U.S. Uh, Congress. Maybe that's a tradition there, uh, where you do have better. Uh, or you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to read anything while you speak in the House of Commons. Reading is is not permitted. So you, you can't you can't look at notes while you're talking in the House of Commons. You would be you you would be stopped. Uh, and except when they're doing question and answer sessions, when the Prime Minister is allowed to have notes in front of him but but by and large in reading is not permitted in, in, in speeches in the house of commons well that includes a speech by churchill where uh yeah yeah he would, the hills we shall go into yeah, uh, yeah no he would he would he wouldn't have been allowed to read that he would have um, he, he would have had to have memorized it and, and stated it so, okay. well craig murray um craig murray dot org dot uk craig murray org at uh, twitter uh, and I guess you're going to get a nice weekend of rest and then uh, go back to the old Bailey on Monday and uh, pump out. You have one coming out tonight or tomorrow uh, for day seven. Yeah, yeah, I haven't. I mean, because I haven't discussed it, but my daily routine, I go into the court. Court starts at 10. It finishes at five. Five o'clock, I come home. Um, I'll have something to eat. Um, I'll go to sleep at 6, um, and I'll sleep from 6 till 10. And I'll wake up at 10, I'll have a coffee, I'll start writing, and it takes me about eight hours to write. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll write till 6 or 7 in the morning, uh, then I'll have another cup of coffee, I'll um, uh, iron my shirt or whatever, get ready, you know, have a shower, shave, proofread what I've written, publish it, and then I'll go again. So I'm getting, you know, maybe five hours sleep a night, I guess, and doing nothing at all, at all, except writing. That's it. That's all I'm doing. Um, and it, it's quite tough. But I start, so on Friday, you know, fr Fridays, Friday, I, I, Friday has come. So I go out for a drink. I have a dinner with friends. Saturday, I relax. And I don't work right up Friday until the Sunday. Uh, and then, then I also, that gives me a chance to add some end of the week thoughts, if you see what I mean. Then Monday, I get back into that hard routine again. Wow. Well, it's, it's, it's really great stuff. And I commend you uh, for doing, um, I don't like it. Well, I'm not, I'm not an atheist. So I can say you're doing God's work. Okay. So, uh, and, and I, I, we all appreciate it. Everybody has remarked about Craig Murray's writing on, on, on the trial. It's the best stuff out there, Craig. And um, it is a trial of the century, even though the century is only 10 years old, but uh, 20 years old. But it really is the trial of the century. And uh, thank you for chronicling it. And uh, this for posterity. And they look back. They're going to look at your writing, Craig. And Craig Murray, once again, uh, visit his website and get all uh, 17 uh, reports from the Old Bailey and from Bell Morris going back uh, to February. Uh, once again, thank you for your great public service, uh, Craig Murray. And, thank you, man. Good, good to talk. We'll be right back, folks, uh, with some closing remarks.
Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows that the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling, like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem roll. Everybody knows. So how was that, uh, Craig Murray? It's been a while. It's been four months, but it was worth the wait. Um, doesn't get any better than that. And so uh, I'm just going to say uh, thank you uh, for listening. Thank you for supporting uh, our program, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, and if you'd like to support us, um, we have a few bills. Please do AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. And I want to thank Kelly Lane uh, down there in North Carolina uh, for uh, her tremendous work. I want to thank Sarah and Emily and Margaret Kunstler uh, for uh, helping out on my end here. And uh, we'll uh, be back um, soon. I can't. I really can't follow that show with, with Craig Murray. I'm going to be a while, folks. All right, maybe another week. Uh, so we're going to go out, um, got an election coming up, uh, a lot of uh, violence by right-wing groups and stuff like that in the U.S. So let's go out with um, Ohio uh, by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Neil Young, who wrote it. Twin soldiers and Nixon coming, we're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming, four days.